Hi, this is Chris Young. Welcome to episode 36 of Contemplating Life. The tagline of this podcast says that it's about disability, religion, entertainment, politics, and anything else I want to talk about. You know, the easy, non-controversial stuff. We briefly dove into politics in the last episode or two, so I thought I would continue a little bit with that theme. In this episode, I want to outline the advocacy efforts of my late mother, Fran Young, and how I joined her in those efforts. Although I will be bragging about some of my own accomplishments, this really is a tribute to my mom, who was such a dedicated advocate and volunteer in a variety of activities. Everything I accomplished in this area was based on her example of hard work and dedication to human services. As mentioned previously, Mom was always interested in politics. She was a bit of a news junkie. She watched the Today Show every morning, local news and NBC Nightly News every night, as far back as the days of Chet Huntley and David Brinkley. I absorbed that passion by being exposed to it at an early age. She had what I called a strong sense of volunteerism. When I started at Robert's School, she became involved in the PTA. First as a room mother, that meant she would host various parties for my class. They would have an annual thank you party to celebrate uh, the annual cookie sale fundraiser. And they would have Valentine parties and Christmas parties. Eventually she was elected treasurer of the PTA and then the president. Through that effort, she got involved in the citywide and statewide PTA organizations. The Indiana State PTA had something called the Exceptional Child Committee. It focused not only on special education for disabled kids, but also on programs for gifted children, such as advanced placement classes. They were active lobbyists at the Indiana General Assembly, advocating for funding for educational programs for exceptional children. There she met a remarkable woman named Amy Cook Lurvey, who became a lifelong friend. Amy was trained as a speech and language therapist and was the first to hold such a position in Indianapolis public schools. She later ran for IPS school board in 1983, but lost to Richard Luger, who would later go on to become Indianapolis mayor and later U.S. Senator. We talked about Luger in some recent episodes. What an amazing man he was. While working as a lobbyist for the PTA, Amy and other such advocates were advised by State Senator Charles E. Bosma that they were not being effective advocates. There were too many organizations competing with one another for scarce resources. He suggested that all of the disability advocacy groups form a coalition that would speak with one voice on behalf of all disabled people. So Amy cook Muriel Lee, and other advocates formed an organization called the Council of Volunteers and Organizations for the Handicapped, or C-O-V-O-H, COVO for short. I don't know for a fact that my mother was on any of the founding documents of that organization, but she certainly was involved from its inception, and I don't hesitate to describe her as one of its founders. It was an organization of organizations, a coalition. 
Its members included groups representing muscular dystrophy, cerebral palsy, Association for Retarded Systems, Deaf and Hearing Impaired, Blind and Visually Impaired, as well as other groups involved in education, such as the PTA. Through the lobbying efforts of this organization, the Indiana General Assembly passed the Mandatory Special Education Act in 1968. Prior to that legislation, there were only two school corporations in the entire state of Indiana that were serving the needs of disabled children. One of them was Robert's School in Indianapolis, where I attended. You've heard all about that in previous episodes. And the other was a special ed school in Gary, Indiana. Anywhere else in the state, if you were in a wheelchair or had any other disability that could not be accommodated by your local school, you simply didn't go to school at all. The most you could hope for was that your school district would send you a homebound teacher. This was a teacher who would visit you perhaps two or three times a week, giving you one-on-one instructions and then a bunch of homework for in-between. The Mandatory Act required that all school districts statewide develop a special education program and begin serving all Hoosier students by 1972. That was the year I graduated high school. Mom often said, well, sometimes you build your bridges behind you so that others can cross. You have no idea how tempting it is to read a sentence like that as if I was Forrest Gump. My mom always said, sometimes you build your bridges behind you so others may cross. Anyway, I was fortunate we lived inside the Indianapolis city limits and the IPS school district. My cousin Nancy, who was born with spina bifida, lived in Lawrence Township, northeast of the city, just outside the IPS limits. My aunt and uncle sold their home and purchased a new one on the south side of Indianapolis, just inside the limits, so that Nancy could go to Robert's school. She was five years younger than me. As we've already chronicled in previous episodes, Roberts did a fine job all the way through junior high, but their high school program was severely deficient. Nancy lived very close to the Indianapolis-Perry Township border, so when she reached high school age, she persuaded IPS to allow her to transfer to Perry Meridian High School. I was pleased to learn that my mother's work here in Indiana was paralleled by none other than Hillary Clinton. When Hillary ran for president in 2016, there were lots of features about her history. They reported one of her first jobs as an advocate was for the Arkansas Department of Education. They were unaware that there were so many disabled kids not being served in Arkansas in the same way they weren't being served in Indiana. I don't recall if they said Arkansas passed its own special education law or if she then took that issue to the federal level, which resulted in the passage in 1975 of Public Law 94-142, known as the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. I thought it was cool to learn that my mother and Hillary had worked on the same cause in different states. In 1973, we also saw the passage of the Rehabilitation Act, including Section 504, which provided civil rights benefits for disabled people. 
substantial progress in disability rights on the federal level had to wait until the passage of the Americans with Disabilities Act, or ADA, in 1990. Now, passing a piece of legislation and implementing it fully are two different processes. There was still much work for COVO to do. The organization, with my mother as the eventual president of the group, continued to be active in the Indiana General Assembly and in other areas. As I grew into adulthood, I began supporting her work at COVO. One of our major activities was to review the abstract of every piece of legislation introduced in the Indiana General Assembly to see if it impacted disabled people. We would then track its progress through the legislature and put out frequent newsletters advising COVO members to write or call their legislators in favor or against various bills as we recommended. We also worked closely with special education administrators. They had an organization led by a wonderful man named Bill Littlejohn. He hired me to post summaries of special education legislation to an online service through Prodigy. Mom served on a statewide special education advisory board for many years. And although I couldn't participate, I enjoyed attending those meetings with her as well as countless COVO general meetings and committee meetings, some of which were held right in our dining room. Periodically, the Indiana State Building Commission reviews all of the building codes for the state of Indiana. Mom educated herself in the federal section 504 accessibility requirements and other accessibility standards. She would attend the monthly meetings of the building commission when they were revising the codes and comment on proposed revisions to the building code. During the summers when I was in college and later after I had to quit work, I would attend such meetings with her. The typical agenda of the building commission was to do some general housekeeping, you know, approve the minutes of the previous meetings, set the agenda. But then architects, developers, and project managers or whoever would come before the board seeking a variance from building codes. If you could prove to them that you had a particular project that was unusual and could not be built strictly according to the code, but you could make accommodations that would ensure safety and access, then the commission would grant you a variance. Mom and I would sit at the back of the room, patiently waiting through these boring requests for variances until we got to the part of the agenda that interested us, and that was the revision of the code. Only after the ordinary business of variances was completed would the commission take up the building code revisions, including accessibility provisions for which we intended to comment. It seemed invariably there was always one group asking for relief from strict adherence to the disability accessibility rules. Because the commissioners knew my mother well, they would often turn to her and ask, Mrs. Young, what do you think about this request for a variance? You know, she became a resource to the commission as their resident expert on accessibility issues. And furthermore, we'd made friends with some of the members of the building commission. The state fire marshal on the board attended the same Catholic church we attended during the summer when we stayed at our lakeside cabin in Brown County. 
if the meeting ran all day, sometimes we'd go out to eat lunch with members of the commission. Anyway, when a plaintiff would hear them ask my mother her opinion, you could see the expression on their face asking, who the hell is this woman, and why are they asking her? On the occasions that I was sitting there in a wheelchair with her, they seemed especially disappointed. They knew they weren't going to get any breaks from me or her with us sitting there staring them down as the accessibility experts. On one memorable occasion, architects representing Indianapolis Market Square Arena were asking for a variance. I don't know if it was for the initial construction of the facility, because my research shows it was completed in 74, and I didn't think I was attending those meetings with my mom until years later. Perhaps it was for a renovation. It might have been for their initial construction. I just don't recall. At any rate, there were two press areas at MSA. One was on the sixth level, nestled into a couple of rows in the grandstand. And then there was another press box high above the arena used for hockey games. That press box was not going to be accessible by elevator, and that would violate accessibility rules. The architects argued there aren't any disabled sports reporters. When the commission asked my mom what she thought, she says, well, what about Tom Carnegie? For those of you who are not local to Indianapolis, or not a longtime race fan, Carnegie was the sports director of local TV station Channel 6, but is most famous for being the PA announcer at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway until he was well into his 80s. As he aged, he began walking with a cane, and he would navigate the speedway in one of those three-wheel electric scooters. Mom asked, what if Tom Carnegie wants to branch out from racing and decides he wants to cover hockey? I chimed in, I'm an aspiring freelance writer. What if I wanted a job as a sports journalist? I wouldn't be able to cover hockey. The architects had to go back to the drawing board. My greatest accomplishment as an advocate was that I was instrumental in the passage of a bill that made it easier for disabled people to vote. Brom and I would go to the State House a couple of days a week during the legislature to read bills, get copies of them, and occasionally attend hearings. I discovered a bill that would allow physically disabled people to be assisted in a voting booth by a member of their immediate family. The way the law was at the time, blind people could be assisted by family members. But if you were physically disabled, you would have to be assisted by the two precinct judges, one Democrat and one Republican. Obviously, you want your vote to be private. These precinct workers could be people you know from your own neighborhood. Maybe they attend your church or whatever. You don't want them to know who you voted for. What if you wanted to vote for an independent or even a communist candidate? That's none of their business. It wasn't surprising that there was already a special provision for blind people to be assisted by their families. Prior to the formation of organizations like COVO, it was common for specific disabilities to be advocates for specific benefits that related to only to their people. Blind and visually impaired advocates had traditionally been very successful 
in securing accommodations, but they did not extend those accommodations to other disabilities. The bill wasn't getting any action. So I tracked down one of the sponsors of the bill. He said he was just a co-sponsor and didn't really have anything to do with it. He just put his name on the bill. I needed to contact the actual author. So I tracked him down. He said that one of his constituents had written him a letter. She had MS, and she wanted her husband to help her operate the voting machine. But the precinct would not allow it. So she did what you're supposed to do. She wrote her legislator. He wrote the bill, but he didn't have the time, inclination, or political capital to see it through. He said we needed to contact the committee chairperson to schedule a hearing. So I tracked down the committee chair. I cornered her in the hallway of the state house. Why haven't you scheduled a hearing for this bill? Now, it had been assigned to some obscure subcommittee on elections that probably didn't have any other business all session long. But seeing me sitting there in a wheelchair asking for a bill that had no price tag necessary and probably wasn't going to ruffle any feathers, she had no choice but to tell me she would schedule a hearing. And she did schedule it. A couple of days later, I got onto the elevator that she happened to be on. She thought I was stalking her around the hallways, trying to pressure her. But I just happened to need a ride on that elevator at that moment. It was a coincidence. She said, I got your hearing schedule. I said, I know, I know. I wasn't trying to track you down. I just happened to be here. The hearing was scheduled at the ungodly hour of 8.30 a.m. And there was a question at first if it was going to be an inaccessible hearing room. Some of the rooms in our ancient state house or up or down three or four steps for no apparent reason, or have horribly narrow doorways. But it was in an accessible location, and I called out the troops. I was there along with five other people in wheelchairs ready to testify for the bill early that morning. One of the representatives asked, Does the bill need a provision that you need something like a note from your doctor stating that you can't operate the machine? One of my buddies, Jim Polly, spoke up and says, I'm tired of having to prove that I'm disabled. Can't you look at me sitting here in a wheelchair and not figure that out for yourself? Are you really concerned this is going to be abused somehow by non-disabled people? As I mentioned, the bill had no price tag, so there really wasn't anything to object to. And it passed out of committee unanimously and then went straight through both houses on unanimous votes. I don't recall if it was even assigned to a committee in the Senate or if they just rubber-stamped it in some committee, but there was no need for an additional hearing in the Senate. You know, once something innocuous makes it through one house, there's usually no resistance in the other house. I later saw the author of the bill, and he thanked me for what I did. He was somewhat embarrassed to admit he'd not given it the attention it deserved. He said it's the kind of thing where you introduce the bill, hope that it goes somewhere, and if it doesn't, you can write back to your constituent and say, hey, at least I tried. Well, apparently he didn't try very hard, and I had to save the day. I'm still extremely proud that my only official effort 
as the lobbyists was so successful. Eventually, the volunteer efforts of my mother and I shifted from disability advocacy to work at St. Gabriel Church. At some point, after we were no longer involved, COVO changed its name to the Council of Volunteers and Organizations for Hoosiers with Disabilities, as the word handicapped had fallen out of favor. See episode four of this podcast for my rant over the loss of the term handicapped. But as best I can tell, COVO no longer exists. It's not that there's no need for disability advocacy, but without a central focus, such as passing the Mandatory Special Education Act, the organization eventually faded away. My mom said that Amy taught her the goal of any human service organization is to make itself obsolete. Once you've met all the needs of your clientele, you no longer need to exist. So I don't feel so bad that COVO is defunct. I feel like it served its purpose. There are other organizations backed by laws and legal precedents that we didn't have before that now allow us to continue to advocate for our rights. My mother is no longer with us. Mrs. Lurvey passed away several years ago. I've linked her obituary in the description. She was an amazing person. Also, Muriel Lee, the mother of my friend Christopher Lee, who was very active in that effort, is no longer around. But I've learned a lot from their example, and there are others carrying on that fight. I want to recommend again a book that I recommended in early episodes. Disabled freelance journalist Ben Matlin's book, Disability Pride, Dispatches from a Post-ADA World, provides an excellent background on the history of disability rights and the current state of affairs. You can find links in the description. My mother also spent countless hours volunteering for the Marion County Muscular Dystrophy Foundation, MCMDF. She developed a book about caring for special needs kids based on her experiences with me. She also updated their publication called Navigation Unlimited. It was a guidebook to accessible facilities in Indianapolis. She would go to restaurants, theaters, shopping centers, government buildings, and other public places, surveying their accessibility accommodations, the availability of handicapped restrooms, handicapped parking. She measured doorways and all sorts of other issues. Now these days, accessibility is much more ubiquitous than it was, and such a guidebook really is no longer needed. I have heard that some cities have developed an app that would serve such a purpose, but I really don't think it's needed anymore. Mom also served on the board of the directors of the MCMDF, and when her term was up, I replaced her and served two terms on their board. We were funded mostly by United Way of Central Indiana. It was always a struggle to get funding for our organization because we were compared to the much more famous Muscular Dystrophy Association of America. MDAA was funded by the famous Jerry Lewis Labor Day Telethon. In those days, MDAA raised funds 
strictly for research. Nothing went to patient services, such as assistance with the purchase of wheelchairs, home modification, assistive technology, accessible fans, etc. Now, the MCMDF did fund a small research program, but it was mostly focused on direct patient services. The other reasons they existed was that they really objected to the way that MDAA portrayed Jerry's kids as objects of pity. The telethon would play on your guilt that you had healthy children in order to raise money. It was a successful tactic, but was abhorrent to nearly everyone in the disability community. But there were reports that of all major charitable organizations, a larger portion of their income went to administrative costs rather than to actual beneficiaries of the charity. I've linked an article from Wikipedia about the MDA telethon, and it talks about its eventual downfall and demise. Jerry Lewis left the telethon in 2011, and the telethon ceased operations after 2014. There have been some online fundraising videos that were a couple of hours long that tried to recreate the telethon efforts, but they've been online only, and they've not had much success. Jerry Lewis died in 2017 at the age of 91. MDAA still exists, and it funds mostly research. Only 30% of their annual budget came from the telethon, so they had other sources of income, mostly corporate donations. They do now also provide some patient services, and overall they're a better organization than they used to be. My organization that I worked with, the MCMDF, expanded beyond Marion County and is now known as the Indiana Muscular Dystrophy Family Foundation. They continue to focus primarily on patient services. I also served for two years on the board of directors of another United Way agency, the Central Indiana Radio Reading Service. This organization used volunteer readers to read newspaper and magazine articles over the radio for people who were described as print handicapped. That includes blind, visually impaired, and anyone who was physically unable to handle print media. The readings were broadcast over a subcarrier frequency of the Butler University radio station and could be received by special radios that were distributed free to anyone who qualified for the service. I joined the organization when it was founded. I remember the first board meeting. Apparently at the time, there were two organizations that represented the interests of blind people. There seemed to be a strong rivalry between them. As we went around the table and everyone introduced themselves, one person proudly said, I represent the people from the blah, 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 whatever the name of the organization was. And then another person proudly said, well, I represent the blah, blah, blah organization, which was the rival. You could really feel the tension between the two groups. When it came to my turn, I said, well, I believe I was invited to serve on this board for my perspective on people with physical disabilities 
who qualify as print handicapped because they can't handle newspapers and magazines. But it's going to be my attempt to serve the interests of all of our constituents, regardless of their affiliation or their variety of handicaps. I saw some smiles from some of the board members. Unfortunately, the blind people didn't see those smiles. I was bringing the Kovo philosophy of, we're all in this together, and a rising tide lifts all boats. I served my term of two years, and then I moved on to other activities. As best I can tell, that organization no longer exists, and is no longer necessary. With all the cable news channels, 24 hours a day, online news that's available to a variety of disabilities, and the advent of text-to-speech and screen-reading software, such a service is no longer necessary. So I'm very proud of everything that my mother did in her lifetime of advocacy and political activism, as well as the countless hours she devoted to her church. And I'm proud to have served with her, and I've tried to carry on some of that legacy. As I mentioned, our focus shifted from disability advocacy to volunteering for a church. I think next week we'll probably start a series about the work I did at St. Gabriel, the Archangel Church. Some of it will be about my continued faith journey that I already chronicled in episodes 6, 7, and 11 through 15. But mostly it will just be my experiences working as a volunteer there. If you find this podcast educational, entertaining, enlightening, or even inspiring, consider sponsoring me on Patreon for just $5 per month. You'll get early access to the podcast and other benefits like the exclusive short story I shared with my Patreon supporters last week. Although I have some financial struggles, I'm not really in this for money, but still every little bit helps. My deepest thanks, as always, to all my financial supporters. Your support pays for the writing seminar I attend and other things. But mostly I appreciate it because it shows how much you care about what I'm doing. Your support means more to me than words can possibly express. Even if you can't provide financial support, I'm begging you, please, post links and share this podcast on social media so I can grow my audience. I just want more listeners and viewers. The money isn't that big a deal. A reminder that all of my back episodes are available. I encourage you to check them out if you're new to the podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or other feedback, please feel free to comment on any of the platforms where you find the podcast. I'll see you next week as we continue contemplating a life. Until then, fly safe, everyone. <laughs>